for October 5th, 2020. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 640. We're talking about practice. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're like a a team together. We're never happier than when we are playing together the great game uh, of talking about the things we love. Uh, We love to uh, talk about them, but more than that, we love to play this great game together. And uh, you are part of our team, too. We're like your your coaches. I'm Coach Matt Rather, and I'm joined by the rest of the coaching staff, uh, Coach Peter Fenzel. Coach? Uh, coach? <laughs> and Coach Mark Lee. Coach? Uh, coach, and also correction, I believe it's side, not team. Okay. <laughs> that uh, is one of many hilarious differences between Americans and uh, the British. Mind for a comic effect in the television show Ted Lasso, which is our subject this week. Ted Lasso is a show that is on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, if you have that service, which I think you can get for free if you bought a uh, if you bought an iThing within the last year. Um, but also, uh, I'm sure there are, there are copies that have fallen off a truck where, wherever you have to get it. Uh, it's one that we think is, is worth watching. Now, the, the premise of this show uh, is that an American football coach who coached uh, Division II football, um, was a college football coach, goes to the UK to coach a, a fictional Premier League football team called AFC Richmond. And there are some personal reasons why he does this, you know, but, but the, you know, the premise is that you have a kind of fish out of water story. You have an American in England, in London doing, um, you know, uh, doing football coaching. Uh, and, and by football, I mean football, not American football. So, um, this this premise is based on a character that was a promo for Premier League football on I think ESPN, uh, it's NBC Sports. Oh, NBC Sports. There you go. Shows shows you yeah. what I know. One of one of many uh, sports related missteps. Mine for hilarious effect in this podcast. It's a podcast. We're talking about podcast. It's a podcast, guys. It's podcast. Okay. You see me in the show. <laughs> giving my all every day but we're talking about podcast you know i mean you you've seen me do comedy pete you you know you've seen yeah. me out there giving my all but we're talking about podcast okay so should i interrupt we've set a rule for this podcast that anytime you want to talk about a moment from ted lasso that's really great you get to interrupt what people are saying Please. you get to talk about it and i feel like i'm being cued to do so right now so uh, there pete, it's, a podcast. it's a it's podcast it's a podcast so as folks may recall, we may have talked about it on the podcast before the podcast. Uh, there is an important historical event for this, the uh, the general cause of running jokes, which was when Allen Iverson's best friend was shot and he had to go be a pallbearer at his funeral. And he came back to play in the NBA playoffs and he didn't show up to practice and he was grilled by reporters at a press conference about him not showing up to practice. And he, and he went off on this kind of tirade, right. About like a, where he mentions the word, not a tirade, but it's sort of a kind of a recursive anxiety driven, confused speech about, you know, not a game, not a game 
practice, which was largely interpreted to reflect that Allen Iverson didn't care about practicing and that he was a prima donna who had an insufficient work ethic, which is probably not fair to Allen Iverson. And I think history has proven out that his coach was really the problem there rather than him necessarily. But at any rate, in Ted Lasso, there is a long joke where Ted Lasso mostly quotes the Allen Iverson practice speech verbatim, but goes in and out of also describing the situation of the character that he's talking to in the context of a prima donna player who isn't going to be practicing because he has a sort of petty dispute with the team. Uh, and also in the context of falling apart because of his own divorce. Right. And so there's this weird junction between the reality of the situation as it's perceived, the reality of it as it's understood as you've researched it, what's being depicted in the comedy show, the surface level joke, which is a sort of Gen X joke that they have to assume that some of the audience is going to get not even Gen X basket. It's a basketball fan joke. And if you're not a basketball fan, and you probably won't get that joke. But the, the, here's the thing. He gives the whole speech about practice, which is very clearly a reference to Allen Iverson, and nobody mentions it, right? Nobody shows, says, oh, Allen Iverson, or who is the, where is that from? Oh, that was a good speech coach. Where'd you get it from? And he doesn't say, like, he doesn't say, like, the answer, right? Like, like they don't tip their hats in the moment to the fact that the speech is a reference to a specific thing. It's just a joke. And, and in doing so, it maintains that sort of razor's edge between the absurdity of its premise, which is the sort of goofy caricaturish accent of what is essentially a commercial character, and also the sort of whimsy of its of its jokey comedy, which kind of breezes through so a lot of the more dramatic scenes, but also its groundedness and character relationships. And really, I think one of the chief strengths of the show, the uh, the feeling, the way that the characters in the show perform the feeling the actors in the show perform the feelings of the characters right i guess is what i would say so anyway practice we're talking about practice we're, we're oh, talking man. about yeah no we're talking about, we're talking about podcast pete and that's your podcast no you're absolutely right that was a uh, that was a fair tackle there pete as they uh, <laughs> uh as they say with the uh with the great moments in ted ted lasso rule that we're uh, that we're observing on this podcast it's podcast it's a podcast we're talking about a podcast so uh what pete said was what i was kind of hemming and hawing and, and getting around to that it was as it turns out nbc sports was going to show premier league football uh on american television and so in order to do a promo they got jason sudeikis to do a kind of caricature of uh, kind of a sketch you know uh an snl sketch but funny about the the idea that uh an american football coach would be sort of pressed into service to go to go coach um soccer and that like uh so it, and in the the commercial he's a sort of arrogant pig-headed ignorant and proud of his ignorance you know sort of caricature of kind of american chauvinism and american kind of blinkeredness about the the rest of the world um thank good and and so uh so <laughs> what apple decided to do with the most valuable the two trillion dollar company decided to do is buy the intellectual property behind this commercial and use it as the basis for a uh you know for a half hour sitcom 10 episodes of of a half hour sitcom um where uh ted lasso the american football coach goes to uh goes to england and coaches and that um coach can i can i interject for a couple things absolutely okay first of all is like i the show 
like straight up from the bat. I didn't know anything about it. I thought he was going to be this like pig-headed, arrogant American, and it'll just be like, look at this fish out of water. Ha! Ah, he's such an, an ugly American. It's not about that, and we'll we'll get more into that later. I think. Um, the other thing is this is a, a slight but important correction. Is like app, the Apple Corporation did not actually decide make any of these creative decisions. Oh, right? there you go. This is a Warner Media production that Apple just like backed up a truckload of money to and purchased, so that I guess like Warner Media could not put. Own streaming service HBO Max, which is a whole other head scratching thing. But just a couple of points of uh, that I wanted to throw in there. Back to you, Coach. Oh God, thanks, thanks, Coach. I uh, yeah, uh, I'm really a big big idea guy. I, I, I need you to run the play, you know, call the plays. Um, the uh, yeah, that's that's sort of interesting. Yeah, HBO uh, HBO Max, which is uh, which is now HBO now is now HBO Max. Uh, go, but the. Uh, the great thing that they do is throw out they throw out the kind of uh weird kind of sandbagging premise and really uh it would be a terrible show if it actually was about a, a pig-headed american i mean it wouldn't it wouldn't be nearly nearly as funny um and and they make this guy a I, I don't even know how to how to put it. Like Pete, how would you describe the character of Ted Lasso in terms of like the kind of clown he is or the kind of character he is in reference to the old commercial version or the, you know, I don't know, the history of like sports movies or the history of like comma of, you know, uh, Will Ferrell comedies or something like that. I I would describe Ted Lasso's character in the show as similar to the way that Mr. Rogers is depicted in the Oscar-nominated film A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Huh. As, a, as a man who performs this great kindness and mentor-oriented sensitivity to others that appears at first to be exaggerated to the point of foolishness, but over time is found to be grounded in very deep feeling. And it's something that he's doing for the benefit of others, perhaps at great emotional expense to himself, but one that he accepts willingly. Right. So so in other words, Ted Lasso is very, very friendly. He is very patient. He is very understanding. But he has the patience and understanding of somebody who's been through something and has decided that this is how he's going to deal with it. Right. It's not the patience and understanding of somebody who has not experienced the things that he's talking about. Um, he's a character who has a mysterious, it's not, I wouldn't even characterize it as mysterious as much as an unknown history, right? Um, it's a great Ted Lasso moment. In one moment in Ted Lasso, Ted Lasso hustles a, uh, a, an evil Richard Branson analog <laughs> in a dart game, um, by, uh, <laughs> and in doing so gives a big speech, which is drawn with a speech is drawn from the philosophy of a very specific American coach, which we're going to go into in a little bit. And we're going to go into the background of who Ted Lasso is as a sort of historiographical, historiographical interpretation of, uh, Americana. But he gives this speech about like, uh, judgment, right? And how you judged me, right? And and, and judgment, I, my father always told me, you know, that, that don't be judgmental, be curious, right? You, you Rather than judging me based on what you knew about me, you should have been curious and asked me questions about what was going on with me because you don't know who I am. So for example, before you agreed to this high stakes bet that I've just challenged to you in this, in this dart game, uh, you could have asked me if I've ever played darts, right? And he reveals that he played darts, you know, every weekend with his father from when he was a small child through to when he was a young man, right? And, and that darts is sort of a huge thing for him. Um, and, and he's, this aspect of Ted Lasso is communicated. I mean, the biggest example of it is that he has a very troubled marriage, which seems to be grounded in, in fairly mature and uh, 
not particularly catastrophic uh, sorts of differences of feeling, mainly just that he he is a very strong personality. He speaks with a very thick Midwestern accent, and he has this sort of almost ghoulish kindness. Um, and it's pretty clear that his wife is just not really into it or doesn't connect with it in some way, and that this has put a lot of strain on, on their marriage over time to the point where she wants to leave him, but she's kind of afraid to really say it because she doesn't want to give up on the kid and she, she doesn't want to be mean to him. Um, and so so Ted Lasso is this very construct. Instead of being this, this, this caricaturist, like, just one-note joke about a stupid, arrogant American, he has a constructed niceness. Which is uh, which is not necessarily covering up, but which has been constructed around, you know, a great deal of experience and kind of private suffering and the kind of stuff that he uh, he hides because he's used to coaching uh, college students. Right. It's like his his the people that he coaches are usually kids. And in that sense, uh, he doesn't really uh, show that side of himself to the people that he works with. Um, so I've, I've gone into a lot of, does that act? I mean, that's probably not what the experience of watching. No, it does like, no, it, yeah. uh, it, no, I, it sort of is actually Pete, because like yeah. one of the, you can talk about a couple different ways that this show is structured and it's like, it's very carefully structured, like in terms of the callbacks of particular jokes. Um, I actually watched it all again today to prepare for the this. Whole thing? Yeah. <laughs> five hours. Yeah. Five hours. It's so yeah. good. Look, everybody, this show is really, really, really yeah. good. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know, it it held up. I actually, I think I might have hurt hurt myself. This, this show, this show is a is a like a beautiful confection, sort of a like a biscuit, a complex, wonderful biscuit baked by hand. Uh, it's not a nutter butter. You know, a lot of American sitcoms are nutter butters, and a nutter butter is a food that is designed uh, to be binge eaten. <laughs> you know, and this is this is maybe a little more complex. It maybe maybe uh, benefits from you know more time to uh more time between episodes but i had that on on first watch when uh, you had to wait a week uh between um between episodes and and i was really just sort of revisiting it to make sure i had it all clear in my head and what i realized is that in the first episode they set the first episodes uh, they set up a couple things including the one man band musician busking on the street uh that pay off later in the uh, they pay off later in the show, but yeah, absolutely, totally, totally, totally true. But sort of one of the the axes, one of the dimensions on which I think Pete the show is structured is that you start with the like, well, you betcha, kind of like Fargo ish caricature of like Midwestern niceness, right? And uh, except not not sinister, um, the kind it's of Flanders from The Simpsons is th- kind of what the perfect major Flanders vibe. Yeah, getting perfect. Yeah, and the the mustache is the same as well, and then. Gra- Gradually, the like the the pathos behind that um, behind that is real is revealed, right? Like, and so you thought that he was going to be kind of a like an idiot clown, you know, a sort of farcical clown, and he turns out to be sort of a tragic clown, um, you know, is one way that I that I could put it. And the and, and the kind of the the opening up of that uh, that can of worms or that like that view into his past is one of the one of the ways that it's structured. It's also structured over the course of like an athletic season you know it's also structured uh with some like intrigue and shenanigans which may or may not be the the best part of the show but like which definitely give it you know some some plot momentum um yeah so it's uh it's uh 
it's that's that all by way of of preamble i i suppose so uh now that we're now that we're into the first uh the first third uh i mean are any games played in thirds um we're gonna say that we're into the first yeah, third hockey oh there you go yeah three periods huh the period, the first yeah period, yep. yeah we're we're uh, to go in the period one minute Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, we're on the power play here, guys, and we're uh, definitely trying to uh, curl the uh, birdie uh, over the line into the net. And um, you know, uh, so you know, keep your helmets on. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the one uh, this person who is obviously a big. Um, a big inspiration for Ted Lasso. So Pete, you, you were kind of the really delving into this very deeply. So as, as a coach, in terms of a coaching philosophy, what he, what he does, his kind of weird combination of like, of sort of moralism and like, uh, quasi therapy and sort of maturity and like, uh, and sort of wisdom (laughs) dispensing, right? Like, uh, it's not invented out of whole cloth. Is it that there is definitely a, uh, someone that it's, it's based on why don't you take it from here why don't you take why don't you take the ball and kick with it so i'm going to put forward a little bit of a framework here it's a little bit more elaborate than what i shared on the back end i'm going to suggest that the mythology of the adored and respected american sports coach not even the mythology but the the culture of it when you when you talk about sports movies and the idea of being inspired to play sports or, or co- the competitiveness of playing sports, or what is it that that sports kind of gives you, or what do you give to sports? I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest that in the general culture of American sports, which in this movie is set against the culture, and this TV show is set against the culture of British sports, which is a little different. You could build. There are three uh, poles. There are three sort of polar spaces, right? Um, one of those spaces belongs to Lou Holtz the football coach of the University of Notre Dame, and more specifically belongs to the movie about Notre Dame football, Rudy, right? Which is the idea that you should, that sports is a vehicle for caring about things and doing something that you love, right? And the idea that you should set goals and you should care about what you're doing and love what you're doing and commit yourself to it. And that if you do that, you can achieve these sort of great moments and great sign of like uh, uh, appreciation. Lou Holtz is a big advocate of a simple life, right? Rudy just wants to play football for Notre Dame and he goes out there and he gets to play football uh, for Notre Dame. And that's that's his hero story, right? That's that's his sort of uh, valiant hero story. And that's referenced in, in Ted Lasso because Ted Lasso has a blue and gold believe sign hanging above his door that uh, most notably Roy hits as he's leaving the uh, as he's leaving the locker room at the end of the at the end of the show, but which you're sort of encouraged to tap. Right. And this is a I think this is a reference, although there are belief signs that are like this. I think it's a reference to the play like a champion today sign that hangs above the tunnel at the Notre Dame football stadium. that All the Notre Dame players hit when they go out in the field. Right. So so there's the sort of Lou Holtz underdog story, care and love uh, and simple life and enjoyment of sports is sort of one pole of this. This this is sort of what you think Ted Lasso is going to be like, but it's not right. Then there's another pole that that it's drawn which is the Vince Lombardi poll, right? Which is misunderstood as the winning isn't everything, it's the only thing, which isn't really what he he thought. But he did believe very strongly that the fulfillment of human beings, and of course, all of this is about men, right? Because they're they're really not interested in a kind of uh, gender-diverse notion of humanity, these guys, right? By and large, in their philosophies. Uh, you know, Vince Lombardi would talk about men. Um, and, and, that, and that the thing that men uh, should be, 
should be doing is is committing themselves to excellence, right? Every every all the blood, all the sweat, everything that you do, right, should be focused on being the best that you can. If you're not as talented as the other guy, you need to work harder. You need to focus on the fundamentals, right? Rocky is a Vince Lombardi style sports figure. Right. It's it's the whole like it's the Vince Lombardi, of course, is the coach of the Green Bay Packers. Uh, for those unfamiliar with American football, a very small market football team, a very small market um, American football team that has a history uh, of of great success uh, based at least in part on the fact that the team is owned by fans uh, and, and is not the kind of product of a, of a, of a kind of media uh, media or uh, other sort of business conglomerate. Right. And, and so Vince Lombardi is like you get out there, you give it all you've got. Right. And, and you give everything that you can to your competition. And that's that's the meaning of your life. Right. And there's lots of sports stories that are like that. And there's a lot of feeling, I think, in American culture around competitiveness that is that is based on that sort of Lombardi philosophy. Right. Which is the uh, this idea of like, you know, excellence and victory and the and particularly the desire for victory is what you should be what you should be focused on. Both of these philosophies are confronted, confronting the reality in sports, which is that sometimes you have to go out there and play a game against somebody who's better than you and will probably beat you. And, and the, the question of how to deal with that and how to motivate yourself to go out there is the question that these coaches are kind of answering, right? And Vince Lombardi will say, well, if you work harder and commit yourself more, then you go out there, you're going to beat them, even if they're better, Right. And especially if you go do it as a team. And then what Lou Holtz would say, he would say similar things, but he'd also say, like, if you're if you're having fun and really committed to what you're doing, right, and you go out there and you and you give it your all and you love it, right, then like then it's it's its own reward, right? Um, but you know, you better play hard. Right? And you better trust each other and you better care. Um, there's a third figure, which is not a football coach, but a basketball coach. And and Matt is familiar with him because he's an alumnus of the university where this man coached. Uh, the the perhaps um, shy of the kind of current generation and uh, Coach K and whatnot of college basketball coaches, he, he is a chief legendary football uh, co- uh, basketball coach. I mean, among collegiate coaches, John Wooden, who is an English professor and also the very, very successful coach of the UCLA Bruins basketball team. You may be familiar with some of his students uh, and slash athletes, and he would refer to them, I think, as students and as athletes, most notably Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, and, and of course, you know, the, the leading scorer in NBA history. Um, and, uh, and I think, is he still? Did he get surpassed at some point? I don't know. But uh, and Bill Walton. Uh, is another one that he coached. But he coached a lot of people. He, you know, he won ten championships in a in a fifteen year period or something like that. Uh, and and he has a different philosophy. And his philosophy, I think, is the Ted Lasso philosophy because and John Wooden, his philosophy is a little bit more sophisticated because he's an English professor. Um, and uh, and uh, and also, and he has a lot of when you ever hear him speak about it, he quotes a lot of poetry and he talks about poetry a lot. Uh, and kind of how to elucidate these things. So the notion, right, that the chief problem in in sport, and if you want to kind of step back and consider it from a scientific perspective, because uh, these are things that are kind of, demo- you, you can argue, well, they're just sort of hokiness, but I think they're demonstrably have a correspondence uh, association with reality. Um, the sort of scientific problem is how can you be motivated uh, to do something that you are almost certainly going to lose, Right. 
and, and that and that is a sort of question that everybody who is starting out in a sport, almost everybody starting out in a sport has to confront, because when you start out, everybody else is better than you. And you have to get better in order to match them, unless you're some sort of huge phenomenal talent. And that's a sort of different question. But even then, sometimes the huge phenomenal talents take a little time to get going. And it's like, OK, why would I go out there and play if I'm going to lose? And, and the larger question is, if you don't have this internal locus of control to understand that your actions are going to lead to good things for you, right, which I think a lot of people are finding in their lives is something that's being questioned right now. Do I have control over whether good things happen to me or not? There's a problematic neurocognitive phenomenon, which is that if you don't believe that you have control, then you will be less motivated to exercise the degree of control you have, right? And, and these, these are sort of philosophies that are geared around or sort of connect with this kind of cognitive function, right? I want to add there. But anyway. So, so ba- ba- sorry, Pete, what, what you're saying, Pete, is that we need to vote. Well, yeah, well, that's the that's part of it, right? It's like, well, your vote <laughs> doesn't matter, right? Well, it's the problem of rational choice theory, which I think is is the notion that if you calculate out the effect of your vote based on the number of other and the relative to the number of other people who are voting and, and you subtract from that the time and energy that it takes to vote, then if you're a utility calculation, you should never vote because you are not a big enough part of the whole thing to get enough benefit for yourself. Right. To to do it for it to matter. Um, and so that's why people who feel a civic engagement, a commitment to the country, uh, perhaps a, a stable residence in the location where they live, an investment in their community that they feel cares about them, right, or a culture, right, or, you know, just a sort of uh, sense of not being discouraged from it sufficiently and being encouraged to do it, right? The, a lot of the reasons, and these things end up, these things do end up affecting the outcomes of elections, right? Individual people can look at it and say, well, I don't have a stake enough, a big enough stake in this for this to be worth my time, which is a rational thing to say. But then when you step back and look at an aggregate, the people who end up getting their, uh, their interests looked after in electoral systems are the people who live in some sort of other kind of framework of incentive, either because their financial interests are so large that they do have a stake in the outcome of the election or because they are so invested in, in some sort of either personal or cultural or other sort of way with the civic uh, polity that they're that they're part of, that it's worth it to them to vote regardless of the outcome. Right. And that's really the question here. And it's the key question of Ted Lasso, I think, too, which is that regardless of what would you do regardless of the outcome and the way that, that John Wooden would articulate it uh, in his sort of uh, very kind of um, poetical way would be, you know, People are very quick to blame the fates for their own errors and, and shortcomings, right? And and that uh, you can believe that people – that things work out the way that they generally ought to if people do what's necessary. And that's a big if, right? If, if, if everybody were to – he has this notion of kind of faith and fate and destiny that if everybody were to do what they were supposed to do – and observe the kind of morality with each other that we were supposed to observe, then the outcome of all that collective work together would be the kind of life that we all ought to be living, right? And and it's and it's and then he takes that and he breaks that down to the microcosm of a basketball team, which is and and also an individual on a basketball team, because you know you can't look at your own fate, right? as the reason for you to do or not do things because it just exists. It's, it's not something that you can affect. Um, but what you can affect is, you know, your own commitment 
to your own your own kind of excellence, right? Your own commitment to believing in yourself, your own commitment to being the best that you can be with the notion that it's sort of you take the derivative, right? You don't strive necessarily to win. You strive uh, in terms of the score on the scoreboard. You strive to win in the sense of being the best that you can be at the thing that you're doing. And then you let the outcome take care of itself. And the outcome will take care of itself. Now, of course, there's a lot to this, you know, being the best that you can be involves, you know, being good at dribbling and shooting a basketball and being a highly conditioned athlete. And, and it's sort of a coincidence, perhaps, that all of the things that you do in this scheme are the same things you do in any other scheme. You run a lot of laps, right? And there's a lot of stuff that you just do to be better. But the idea in, the, in Ted Lasso's show is that um, it's not about whether the team scores enough goals to win the, fo- the football match. It's about whether the individual players on the team are each being inspired Right. And are each kind of finding a way to fully realize their own their own value, their own reason for doing what they're doing. Um, and, and the reason you can connect Ted Lasso to John Wooden so directly and, and Matt, you can correct me on this if I'm getting any of this off because I'm newly exposed to all this, even though I've been reading up on it, is that when Ted Lasso moves into his office, he has an autographed print of what's called the Pyramid of Excellence, which is a document that I'll let Matt go into and describe. But it's autographed, I think, by John Wooden, and he hangs it up like in his office in the show. Right? So it's so we know that they know who John Wooden is. And in particular, when he's talking about uh, you know, the, the quote you'll always find on the on the Pyramid of Excellence is success is peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing you did your best to become the best that you are capable of becoming. Right. And uh, and that and that those are there's so much complexity and proviso in that. Right. It, it's got loopholes big enough to, to that Lou Alcindor could run through them. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, but but duck, I but. think you're <laughs> that was a sports joke. But the um, the uh, <laughs> but Pete, I, I think like just like let's take like subject verb predicate in that sentence. Success is peace of mind. Now, there's a lot of uh, uh, qualification of that. There are some relative clauses <laughs> that come right after it. But that is so. So that is so, so indicative of the thing that you're talking about, right? Success is peace of mind. Um, okay, so how do you get peace of mind? Success is peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction. Uh, not self-satisfaction in a smug way, but self-satisfaction in that you are the only arbiter of this satisfaction. Uh, in knowing that you made the effort to become <laughs> the best of which you are capable um, and that's interesting not to do your best made the effort to do your best would be a different kind of claim than this, right? The effort to yeah. become the best of which you are capable. Uh, and that like, so, okay. So success is peace of mind. The success subs- subs- subsists in the mental state brought about by your own, uh, in your, you know, soul and absolute authority, uh, your arbitration of the question of whether you made the effort, not attained, but made the effort to become, <laughs> Not to do, but to become the best of which you are capable. So there is a sort of like, there is a effort at perfecting your own capacities, right? That is the, uh, and, and if you did, uh, and if you did this to your utmost, 
the self-satisfaction, you, you will know that you did this to your, to your utmost and no one can take that away from you. And, you know, no one can, and that will lead to peace of mind, which is success, which is like, it's, I hadn't thought Pete of internal or versus external locus of control and that idea of kind of resilience. Um, right. But like, it is true that the best, the best people, like in it really in any pursuit, like the, in any competitive pursuit or in any, you know, life pursuit, I guess a lot of, you know, competitive pursuits in life are competitive, even if the competition is sublimated to a certain extent, the, the people who are good, the people who are the best are, are the people who keep coming and just keep coming and keep coming. And the internal locus of control allows them to do that, you know, uh, allows them to kind of, to kind of dust themselves off and, and keep coming. This is, a, it is a, um, fascinating thing. It is up Every like every wall. I think it's it's actually probably a law in the state of California that every wall at UCLA has to have this like pasted or like chiseled or you know decoupaged onto it or something like that. And the the wooden pyramid, uh, uh, wooden pyramid of success, which is the like the idea of what are the building blocks personally and with a team to kind of to attaining this this you know state of perfection of your own capacities um right uh perfection uh <laughs> in the latin sense of of uh you know making making complete um making you know finished uh, rather than uh, rather than like in the platonic sense of of uh, uh being without flaw right um that the the sort of perfection of your your capacities and so like the 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 things are like you know are are just regular captain planet virtues you know industriousness friendship loyalty cooperation enthusiasm self-control alertness initiative intentness third row condition skill team spirit uh, for, uh, fourth row poise and confidence and then uh, the fifth row competitive Greatness and uh, along the sides of the pyramid are written the words faith and patience because those are the kind of the two slopes, you know, uh, up the pyramid. Like faith in the sense of he, he was a religious man, I believe, and and so like faith in the sense in the biblical sense of evidence of things not seen. Right, you have to sort of believe in your competitive excellence even when you're you know making rookie mistakes or even when you're like deconditioned and you haven't kind of done your your drills yet. And then patience in terms of like being willing to like uh put in the work over a long period of time um knowing that the the reward will will come later and yeah absolutely i mean it seems the the um but the thing this is like very deep in his philosophy the thing that pe- that people say about him in interviews and like there there is he is a he is a powerful marketing force for ucla basketball <laughs> and like uh i get the emails man i i like i can't i really can't remove myself from the list i've tried on a number of occasions but uh bidden or unbidden john will john wooden shows up in my inbox uh you know every on a every three day email marketing cadence and the the um the thing that people say about him is that like he cares as much about the kind of person you are uh as much as he does about the the uh performance the kind of the or the athletic result right the the competitive result and that i suppose that is 
a, a direct result of this definition of success? Like the people who the people who buy into it and attain it are actually going to have it are going to feel it in in other areas of their life because it's a kind of profound thought technology for for reshaping your um your own experience of struggle and suffering, I suppose, uh, into a kind of a grand narrative, like a master narrative of, of um, you know, ultimate meaning uh, for yourself. So, so to throw in a Ted Lasso moment, right? <laughs> so Ted, in Ted Lasso, there is a great moment. There are many great moments in Ted Lasso. In Ted Lasso, there is a great moment where the aging uh, football star Roy Kent who is no longer able to keep up with the young players. I guess they keep calling him an octogenarian, but I guess he's supposed to be like 38 or 39 years old um, or maybe even younger than that. But it's pretty clear he's going to have to retire soon or go to America and dominate the MLS, which he, he sees as beneath him. Um, and, and he's had this issue so angry about losing a step that he's not able to appropriately direct his anger where it belongs, which is at the other team on the soccer field, which is pretty funny. But at any rate, Roy is uh, is is stewing over how all he is to people is a football player. And if he stops being a football player because he has to retire, he won't be anything to anybody. And the uh, is it Kaylee, the the woman in this, uh, the who he's dating uh-huh. is a sort Keely. of Keely. Oh, yeah. She's sort of a page yeah. six girl, right? She's like a topless model in the UK media who dates all the soccer players. And there's a sense that she's also kind of, you know, pushing 30 and wants to kind of arrive at some she wants to become the best that she can be at the things that she does as well because everybody here is living that john wooden life um and she brings his daughter over who is on visitation from his ex-wife or or ex-girlfriend or whatever niece Um, i thought but niece oh it's his niece that's right that's isn't that interesting he takes care of his niece right um he's like he has a sort of mike ermintrout vibe to him in certain the way that he's sort of super gruff but takes care of this little girl uh and and who loves him a lot and she asks the little girl what the, he does. Like, who is he? Who is your uncle? Right. And she says, well, you know, he, he's, he curses a lot. He's angry. He, he loves me. Um, and he brings me ice cream. Right. And, and this is an echo of a previous conversation that Roy has with Mike, La- with uh, Ted Lasso, where it's like, uh, well, what do you do with your niece? And like, I take her to ice cream. And he's like, ice cream is great. And he's like, yeah, ice cream's great, right? And there's this sort of symbol for Roy of this ice cream that he gives to his niece that he uncategorically believes is just really super great. Not this specific ice cream, but just the idea of getting ice cream is in and of itself indisputably great. And Ted Lasso, as the coach, is to- as the Midwestern, you know, sort of hokey Midwestern mustachios Flanders coach, is totally like ice cream is great. And Roy, as the angry hooligan, is like ice cream is definitely great. And they all agree on this, right? And the sort of question then is, what is this ice cream that Roy is bringing to his niece? And I think that you can locate it in John Wooden's philosophy, right? As that dimension of Roy, right? That thing that that he that he seeks to become, right? The best that he is capable of becoming. What is the what is the best thing that is capable of becoming? Ice cream is the best thing that is capable of becoming right in the kit. Right. And, 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 and this is a sort of running joke through the show too, where people love little delicious treats and little delicious food. And they have these little moments of perfection with treats and foods and what they love. Right. Um, and so the notion and what the point of this whole thing is that not once does Roy's niece mention that he's a football player. And, and this idea that this, this little girl who cares so much for him and who understands that he cares so much for her, he has become something outside of the game 
in the way that John Wooden would say, you know, be great in the game and be great in life. Right. Uh, and Roy has unknowingly become great in life and he needs to discover right that he has become great in life and he needs to move forward in his life to the next thing that his life gives him which is i think supposed to be meaningful interpersonal relationships especially with women and also a you know a greater understanding of the value that he brings as a caregiver and nurturer as well as a sort of tough guy uh both to his teammates and also to the people outside of his team that he takes care of he has to become the captain right and he has to recognize that he's already the captain of his niece and that she is looking up to him and needs things from him. So it's all connected. All, and he does this mostly through a series of, like, gruff jokes, right? <laughs> and, like, yeah, there are speeches and stuff, but he's a very comical character um, who, who very is, is sort of very boorish and blind to things. And, you know, it's not a heavy lift to watch him struggle with all these ideas. It's just the yoke is the yoke is easy and the burden light, right? (laughs) (laughs) But but that wooden-esque transformation is taking place, right? Of him rediscovering his various personal qualities that he has uh, to become this thing that he needs to be, which is a leader, right? And there's that, I mean, there's another great moment. I hate to, I hate to double, double dip. Um, I mean, Matt, do you know the one I'm talking about? I like, uh, oh no, you can, you can double dip like a, like a delicious ice cream cone. Oh, it's so great. Like, so, a, like a finger going back into a peanut butter jar. <laughs> yes. Yes. So one of the things Ted Lasso does for his teammates or for his team is he buys them each a book, which you are led to believe custom, custom picked for their personality. Oh, it is. Kind of, it is. Jamie yeah. Tart gets yeah. the beautiful and the damned. I mean, he gets F. Scott Fitzgerald's, you know, <laughs> like, like, uh, you know, sort of a tale about like jazz age and like uh, World War One, you know, and how the like the highly materialistic, the kind of doomed generation of like highly materialistic sort of pleasure seeking, uh, you know, people are, are, you know, they, they are beautiful, but they, but they are damned. But Roy gets uh, a wrinkle in time, you know, (laughs) and there's this scene which has come about because the show is very artfully structured where there's a very serious uh, newspaper reporter who is looking to do he is he is coming to the table with the notion of doing a very critical review uh, of the uh, of the personality and performance of this American outlandish American coach who has come to who through the experience of getting to know Ted Lasso actually becomes quite fond of him and writes a not entirely scathing uh, article about him. And so when Roy brings up like you gave me a wrinkle in time, what's that about? Right. And the newspaper <laughs> guy says, well, it's about a young girl who travels the universe and discovers her capacity for leadership. Right. <laughs> 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 Um, this is not the Geico caveman sitcom people. (laughs) This is is different. It's also, by Um, the way, in her, her anger is a theme of that book, you know, and like kind of dealing, good call dealing with like how she deals with the sort of the burden of responsibility and the kind of the manifest unfairness of stuff that she has to do. But even though it's unfair, she has to do it anyway, because that's how life is sometimes, you know, that's, uh, like it is, it is truly, truly the, the perfect book for him. There's, there's one more. Can I get great moments in Ted Lasso, great moments in Ted Lasso. The, um, uh, there's another literary reference. I don't, I wish I had a peg to hang this on, uh, in terms of our conversation here, but like, um, 
after the first defeat, Coach Beard, uh, by the way, if you want to know how great this show is, there's a character. He's the assistant coach. He has a beard. His name is Coach Beard. <laughs> That's all you need to know about him. And he's a wonderful character. And uh, so the... the um, he says, uh, I hate losing, coach. And uh, Ted kind of comforts him by saying, bird by bird, coach, bird by bird. <laughs> I heard that. I heard that. Annie Lamott. Yeah. Uh, Anne Lamott is a, uh, is a novelist who, uh, because if you're a novelist of a certain stature, you have to, to write a book about your philosophy of writing. Um, Stephen King did it. So it's a thing that you have to do. It's the law. Uh, she wrote a book about it's uh, called Some Thoughts on Writing and Life is the subtitle. The title is Bird by Bird, right? Now, I, I read this a while ago. It's a very good book about, uh, about writing. There's some very good thought technologies um, in this book. One is the poopy first draft. If you're sitting down to write, your job is not to make it good. Your job is to arrive at a poopy first draft. She uses a different word that is not PG-13 for this podcast. Um, uh, One-inch picture frame, like that is to say, if you are struggling with a passage of writing, imagine looking at it through a one-inch picture frame and kind of describing the minute thing that you see and then moving the one-inch picture frame along. And then uh, Bird by Bird, uh, the title of the book, comes from something that that uh, her mother said to her when she was a kid and had to write a report uh, on like all the birds in the Audubon Society book or something like that. And, and uh, she complains as a kid in this, she relates the story of complaining to her mother, how can I do this? And her mother says, bird by bird, you just take it bird by bird. And so it's a gloss on like, uh, you know, the, where, how do you eat an elephant, you know, um, one bite at a time, but, but bird by bird. And like that, that like, and Lamott, like, come on, you know, that is a, that is a, uh, a pretty deep, like literary fiction cut for, uh, for a show like this to have. And it's, uh, I, you know, I don't know. It's, uh, it's also like, uh, Ted's knowledge of, of hip hop is, is really over and above where you would expect it to be given his background though maybe not musical theater as well yeah musical Ger- theater maybe, Wynn, yeah well west side story many uh, several other musicals <laughs> yeah uh, no that was the king and i yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so okay so uh, let me uh take this in a slightly different direction but kind of try to tie all of this up together right this show is, is operating on uh an incredibly uh smart level right it is pulling in so many different references to so go back to the john wooden stuff for a second right john wooden i don't think is ever mentioned by name in the show the pyramid of success graphic that we've been talking about um, is shown prominently in at least one, if not you know, multiple shots in this. Um, but everything that we're talking about here, you know, the the different components of uh, John Wooden's philosophy and the blocks on the pyramid of success that lead up to the ultimate boon of success, right? They, they never like beat you over the head of this in the show. Just, <laughs> the, like, the ultimate, the ultimate boon. <laughs> yeah, um, and. Uh, and, and all the literary references that we're talking about here, right? Like they're there for the taking. You're not going to get, you're going to get some, most of them. And you know, your, your appreciation for the show is just deepened for the things that you get. And uh, the rest of it is there uh, for, for those who, who can pick it up. And, you know, it's, it's just weaves this rich tapestry. It's very in touch with the broader world outside of the show um, itself. It's just incredibly smart in that way. Now, very notably, what it does not draw in from the outside world is contemporary politics. Like, it maybe just kind of skirts by it a little bit here and there. But uh, I guess the question I want to ask the two of you is, like, to what extent does this show um, have any dialogue at all with 
Trump's America and Brexit's and, and, and the England and the United States of Brexit, right? Like, uh, is this show trying to repudiate these the, the ugliness of both of those camps, you know, which, of course, you know, the, the um, ugly American that's been, you know, predates Trump, of course, but, you know, like, you know, that is boorish and ignorant. Um, and also, like, the Brexit uh, mentality that is selfish, that is xenophobic. And all these other uh, very negative things, uh, you know, it's perceived by people who don't like Trump or and also don't like Brexit. Um, yeah, yeah, and and, is and, and that is, is it is it working at that level or is it all just kind of like there just for us to interpret because the author is dead and so on and so forth and like you know we can uh, fill in those gaps just for ourselves. I mean, British football also like let's let's uh, let's not forget it. It is not untroubled by They're its own. Yeah. yeah, are they are they super racist? Yes, yes, they are super racist sometimes. Yeah, uh, but to be clear, like you know, um, in this racism for just a second, right? Or how it's just it's. It does not manifest itself in this show, right? On the Richmond team, does, but well, okay. Sorry, well, on the on the Richmond team, right? There are multiple. There are several. There are many, you know, people from all different ethnicities on the on on the team. Um, one person who's singled out for being picked on, I think, because of his background, is Nigerian, right? And he's like dark skin. He's African of descent, of course. There are other black players on the team, um, and they, they do not get ridiculed. Um, in, in any sort of significant way on this, so like it's not operating. Uh, I don't think it's it's operating on that. But Pete, what you, what uh, what did you have in mind? Well, um, well, I would suggest that the so okay, so you've got Jamie Tart and his crew, right? Which which is not all white people, but they are all bullies, and they primarily bully Sam, the Nigerian player, and Nate, the uh, I guess Southeast or uh, sort of a subcontinental equipment manager. He's, I think he's, he's either Indian or, or Pakistani or from right. uh, from that general neck of the woods, um, and uh, and they both and both of them are are don't like him very much, and and Nate is at the point of being terrorized by him, right? Um, and and the way that the show kind of communicates it to you is it gives you little moments where you see it happening, and it shows you the reactions of other people as they're watching it, and you get the sense that something racist is happening. But it's kind of the way that that sort of thing happened in real life where it's not explicitly called out as such. It's sort of part of the landscape is that these guys are engaged in this bullying and either the bullying happens to be racist because that's where the kind of fault lines are in society or the bullying is explicitly racist, but they know enough not to say so. Right. Um, And so so I would say that 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 is that is one of the interesting ways in which it does at least it's not denying that this sort of thing exists, but it's not commenting on it and in the sense of explicitly commenting on it, right, explicitly saying that this is something that this guy does. Partly it's because they want him to be redeemable, I suppose. But I think partly it's also because that the show likes to slip things in. Right. Like it's not just the Anne Lamont references that get get slipped into the show or the John Wooden references. It's also these sort of other ideas that are not directly addressed. I would I mean, my answer to your question is Trump in this show. Yes, he is. Right. Or rather, Trump's nightmare is in this show, because who is the ultimate nightmare of Donald Trump? Can you guess in this show who's who's the character that Trump just can't tolerate and can't understand and can't deal with at all? Is it the title character? Danny Rojas! Danny oh, Rojas! Danny Rojas! Football is life! Uh, so, so halfway through the this, this season, um, 
when the sort of uh, golden boy, young guy, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Gatsby-esque, like self-destructive 23-year-old idiot, right, who is who is a football, a great football talent and a, and a general uh, real, real uh, uh, tuna head of a human being, um, <laughs> when it looks like he is not going to be a constructive part of the team anymore, uh, the team sort of calls up. I believe he's is he Mexican? Uh, yeah. He's definitely from from uh, Latin America, um, but he doesn't say much other than his own name. He's like a Pokemon. <laughs> oh, he says uh, he says one other thing. <laughs> he says one other thing over and over and over. Pete, he says football is life. <laughs> and so what they call up is a very talented, enthusiastic and hardworking uh, Mexican man right? <laughs> who shows up and turns out uh, through hard work and determination and talent and intelligence to be a really, really good soccer player, right? Like sufficient to be so good that if this other guy doesn't work out, they don't need him, right? They could replace the white guy with the Mexican guy if that's what they wanted to do, right? Uh, And they could solve themselves a lot of a heartache if they were to do that because the guy is so difficult to deal with. But what is Ted Lasso's reaction, right? Ted Lasso's reaction to the situation specifically, and he's the only one who feels this way, is that is that he it's, it's he had he had one ace is what he says he describes it he invokes Kenny Rogers several times <laughs> of this season because of course he does he had one ace when he had Jamie Tart he's this superstar in the making right um, and then he gets this other guy in uh, Danny Rojas and Danny Rojas also turns out to be an ace and that means he has two aces right that's not the way that the nativist talks about human talent enthusiasm capability possibility teamwork right. The sort of shared success, right? The building of a society and community is not about this. It's, you know, the, the Trump way of doing it is like, you know, is not, oh, these guys are all coming in from El Salvador. And you know what? They're really great if you get to know them. <laughs> right? like, and not only that, I bet you they'll get along great with the white people who are already here, and it's going to be awesome, right? Like, uh, right? Yeah, you know, or like, or like, hey, you know, by by the way, they're you know they, they were putting them into an economy where they have to work fifty times as hard to make you know one fiftieth of the living, and so that not only do they have industry, but we probably don't need to teach anything about creativity or big ideas to the cultures that produced you know I don't know the Borges or or Marquez or Frida Kahlo, right? Like the- La, La Sestina, the comedy of Callisto and Melibia, by, uh, which is by uh, uh, Fernando de Rojas. <laughs> I was trying to look up to see whether Danny Rojas was a literary reference. I don't think he is. Uh, Fernando, I don't think he's a reference to the uh, to the comedy, the, basically the Spanish divine comedy. Um, <laughs> but at any rate. So, so, um, okay. So let's zoom out on the shows. It's not politics on its like overall worldview, like, you know, outside of the stuff that we just talked about um, uh, from the sort of coaching perspective. Right. Like this show firmly rejects any sort of zero sum calculation. In right. other words, like, you know, my gain must come at someone else's expense mm. like and and uh, maybe no great think detriment about- of everybody in the show by the way of all the characters right <laughs> sorry go ahead go ahead go ahead you think so well okay so like well, I mean, a, you a, want the me to give you the ted lasso no. moment the ted lasso moment here well let me give oh, my ted sorry, lasso moment here which is is actually the uh, the rebecca moment right which is that um the the reason why ted lasso is brought to coach this team is because the new owner of the club is trying to tank the team in order to enact revenge upon her cheating ex-husband. Um, I thought this was probably the weakest part of the show. Others might disagree on it, but 
Um, at the end of the day, for a variety of reasons, Rebecca, the owner, um, is charmed uh, by Ted Lasso, you know, and, and, and comes around and sees that, you know, her trying to sabotage him every step of the way was wrong. She comes clean and Ted Lasso accepts her apology. And, you know, that, that's, you know, rather than, you know, either of them trying to destroy each other, they combine forces. And while well, they don't, well, they still lose the head and they, re- they are relegated to the, the lower uh, division of, of English football. Um, but, you know, the idea is that they're set up, they've built something there and they're set up to achieve great things next year. So that's, that's rejecting the zero sum thing. And that's how, like, you know, that's the show ends on a, a positive note. But Pete. What are you saying about how it, well, it, it comes at the great detriment to them? Well, the joke is that Ted Lasso is such a devotee of the John Wooden way of thinking about coaching, which is that it's not about what wins on the scoreboard. Sometimes you win on the scoreboard, but you feel like you lost. And sometimes you lost on the scoreboard and you feel like you won. It's really not about that. It's about becoming that best person that you could be. Uh, he's not even aware that relegation exists in the Premier League until halftime of the last game of the season i think <laughs> or something along those lines i mean it might be right before the last game of the season right and he has like one last chance to break very late in the game yeah. but he does not know that the premier league is a zero-sum game in that if you're at the bottom of the premier league in terms of losses you get relegated to a lower league you basically become a minor league team right uh and, and then you have to fight your way back into the majors um and, and he, he is so focused on his sort of gym teacher mentality that he, he doesn't even know the rules of the game that he's playing in uh, which is where it goes back. It's sort of the grand fulfillment of the promise of the NBC sports commercials where it's like, you call that offsides? How is that offsides? No, seriously, tell me. How is it offsides? I have no idea how offsides work. It's very confusing. <laughs> like that kind of thing. Um, which is, and all those jokes from those commercials are repeated, wrote in the show too. Uh, because, you know, why waste, why waste a joke you've already written? Um, but no, Mark, I'm agreeing with you in the sense that when I'm saying that the show is engaging with this politics, I'm not saying that you're wrong. I think you're right in that the show is what the show is doing is it's refusing to adopt the vocabulary of the people that it disrespects. Right. It's not going to use the words of of the people who would tear it down to articulate the things that it's trying to say. It's 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 framing its own narrative is what it's doing. And, and I think that's, that's a particularly interesting thing to be, to seek to do because it's also not responding directly to the narrative, right? It's not, it's not involved. It, it's not picking its discursive participation in the sense of what's being disputed, right? It instead is looking to real life manifestations of the issues of political importance and controversy. And it's coming up with characters and situations in the show that are related to the experience of those situations rather than to the particular axes and nexus points where the discourse of conflict exists. Right. Um, right. And so it, mean, it has its cake and eats it too, to an extent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And the other thing, just kind of put it, we're talking about broader context that the show exists in and like a conflict that it does, does directly address is just like, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious, right? The, uh, you know, decades, centuries long tradition of the fish out of water, but in particular, the American fish out of water in, in a British ocean. Right. I mean, I would also cite, you know, important texts from the last century, King Ralph. As a good example <laughs> of this, right? Uh, I mean, that, that's almost like you know, it's like table stakes in a certain way. Like you, you know, it. But uh, that's an important piece of that. Man, I don't know. Peter King like, Ralph is so implausible, though. Don't you feel <laughs> ungrounded? I mean, the whole. Imagine the whole 
royal family of the UK all getting together for one big party where everybody is in this horrible life threatening situation and they're all incapacitated at the same time. Who would be so stupid <laughs> to write such an implausible plot uh, yes, as right, that? The implausible plot is King Ralph, where John Goodman has to become king because everybody else, uh, you know, was in the Rose Garden uh, at, at the photo shoot or whatever. So um, I, I like. Uh, Pete, I, I think you're you're totally right that that like there is something kind of linguistic going on in terms of what the show is saying uh, or in terms of how the show wants to kind of make its points. Linguistic in the sense of kind of it's trying to develop a vocabulary, right, for talking for talking about something, for talking about life, for talking about um uh, you know, for talking about uh, the subjects that that it wants to talk about, and what what are those subjects? Uh, you ask in you know my sort of version of this conversation that we're having in my head. What are those subjects, Matt? You you ask with with great interest. And Matt, what are those subjects? <laughs> oh my god! Oh god! It came, it came true. It's like uh, it's like I believed really hard, and then and, and then it came true. I you know I think. The, the the reason I sort of got in uh, got in with the show and the thing that hooked me uh, about it was uh, the thing that seemed to be the the subject of the show the kind of the latent subject of the show was a kind of reevaluation of ideas about masculinity right and that's and and taking and and using sports like that most you know macho of pastimes um as the canvas on which to kind of to paint this sort of new picture of uh really of of kind of what it means what it means to be masculine right in a in a time when a lot of a lot of the ideas of, uh, you know, a lot of kind of patriarchal ideas of, of masculinity are, are being sort of justifiably criticized. And it's not, you know, the, and the, these things are a little bit subtle, but it, it struck me that like, you know, how do you, what is the kind of the nurturing, you know, what is the nurturing aspect of masculinity? And like Ted Lasso definitely, definitely has that, right? Like you're talking about, you know, he, he puts aside his own, his own uh, BS so that he can um, be there for the, you know, the people who, you know, who's sort of uh, thriving is entrusted to him. Like it's sort of like be, being a parent a little bit. And the the um, the idea of of sort of parenting and like how how do you deal with children and and the idea of sort of uh, that that kind of like middle that like middle age of man you know after the uh, after the infant and the boy and after the kind of the the warrior uh, and the lover right like uh, the lover and the soldier stages um, which are where most of the soccer players are like how do you how do you do that in a way that that you know comports with our best ideas of of how to live now and it's it strikes me that like a, a lot of traditionally um a lot of traditionally masculine qualities um you know i don't know uh uh strength uh you know patience determination uh not that these like these these sort of strong silent type you know movie hero leading man type of qualities not that these are not feminine qualities uh as well but like these things these sort of things that are traditionally gendered masculine and and even the ones that um 
even the ones that are generally moralized in a negative way, like anger or like uh, aggression or even violence, you know, um, the, these things, it's sort of trying to, the, the show seems to be trying to paint a picture where these things can be kind of marshaled in service of a pro-social goal and not an anti-social goal, you know, like the, the scene, the, the one interesting scene for me here is where, well, it's funny. We we talked about the trip, a series of films a couple weeks ago. And the thing that I, the thing that I said, the thing that I love about the trip is that they, they just take the piss out of each other nonstop. They're just constantly at each other. The two characters, Steve, the two real people who are also characters, characters of themselves. Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon and that. And the point that I was trying to make about that is that 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 kind of constant uh, that kind of constant teasing each other, that kind of constant poking at each other, that's how they say I love you. Right? And like the way Roy says I love you is by ripping a bench out of the ground, you know? And that's how that's how he says, I am dedicated, you know, I'm dedicated to this team and I'm going to give my all for my uh, I'm going to give my all for my my teammates, for my family, you know. Um and that, like, to, to a certain extent, I think you could take these, uh, you could take these things, um, everyone kind of has a virtue that they could be said, said it, allegorically, that they could be said to embody, you know, um, Jamie is kind of like athletic excellence or like a good result, like performative excellence, you know? Uh, he's there, you know, blasting his, blasting his buys or so, whatever the, the kids are calling it these days. Um, right. Like, uh, Roy is sort of anger. Ted is a, is a kind of a nurturing, uh, quality, you know? Um, uh, Danny is joy, right? Uh, that, that, that they're all, they all kind of take the part, um, in this kind of allegorical play, in this kind of like every man story, like of a different, uh, of a different kind of like masculine attribute or virtue. Um, and they all, you know, learn that there is a perfection. There is a Wooden-esque perfection of that capacity, right? Which will allow them to participate productively in the team. Uh, but which, if mis- misused, is, uh, you know, potentially destructive, is, you know, potentially antisocial, potentially dangerous, right? Um, that, uh, you know, and that like kind of litigating, uh, relitigating the way in which we can kind of build these identities, you know, out of these building blocks, out of these building blocks, uh, of success and, you know, to kind of not to be, uh, not to kind of write aggression off entirely, but to kind of see how, uh, if kind of properly managed, you know, and properly channeled, it can be a really, uh, useful and even a positive thing, uh, for a society struck me as like one of the things thematically that this, this show had, um, going on for it. And like, and the fact that it's, it is co- just completely, it's not even an issue completely untroubled with like, you know, the whole team, uh, the whole team sitting down together to have a good cry. Can you think of a time, Mark, when the whole team sat down together to have a good cry in Ted Lasso? Hmm, perhaps it might be when they were watching a certain film that's about a, uh, a a traditional symbol of masculinity that then is you know is channeled all of its uh, aspects uh, away from a destructive force to a more protective and nurturing one. Oh. What could that be? Might have tossed it to Pete to answer that question. Pete, what movie was that? 
That, that's those category. Ca- if uh, you bloggers. would suggest that this is a television show where the the whole team gets together to watch the Iron Giant, then you would be correct, which is amazing. I love it. Um, I love it. The, he proposes to the team every time they go on a road trip. Is it is it movie night or pillow fight night? Right. And they always pick movie night because he doesn't want them going out on the town and they don't want to, you know, admit their uh, homosociality or whatever is going on with them. Um, and yeah, so so the night so that they don't go out and party the night before the match, they all watch the Iron Giant. And at first, some of them are on their phones. But the ones who've seen it before are like, put that down <laughs> like uh and then, by, and then by the end of it, I think at one point he's like, make sure there's uh, tissues because you're going to have a whole bunch of grown men crying in here in a little bit. And Coach Beard is like, I already got mine. <laughs> so because uh, Coach Beard is great. Um, yeah. Iron Giant, man. Um, very reflective of what Matt's talking about, too, because it's also about uh, really rebuilding masculinity from sports. And I, I would mm-hmm. in addition to the ascribable qualities that are associated with masculinity. I would also suggest the traditions that are associated with masculine identity performance uh, and the kind of literary participation and kind of cultural participations uh, that are also located in, in male homosocial relationships, whether they're intergenerational or intragenerational, right? Like fathers and sons, uh, male friends in kind of male spaces, how you talk to each other, what you learned, who you who you are because of what you've been through or what you've experienced that you're not necessarily going to be able to eliminate just because they're politically inconvenient. And instead, the challenge is rather uh, as rather said to to build them or apply them in a so in a in a pro-social way. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that 100 um, percent. I mean, it is also a, it is also a show where there are a fair number of female characters who I mean, it you know, it, it passes the Bechdel test a lot. They have a lot of conversations about a lot of things. And a lot of it is about getting moving on from the terrible men that they've had in their past. Right. Um, either either because they haven't been what they needed or because they've been actively abusive or or all these sorts of things. Um, but right, it, like but so, it, sort of Rebecca's Rebecca's journey is a journey from defining herself in terms of, I mean, in opposition to, but still in terms of, uh, you know, the her asshole ex husband, right, to sort of right. finding finding kind of what she likes. Uh, she says, you know, uh, to to finding her own way of giving an s. <laughs> the, the way right, she, right. Uh, it, the phrase she uses a couple times in the last uh, in the last episode, and and Keely's is about kind of like what does a mature relationship uh re- relationship look like for her you know there's yeah i i think i now i not every show can be about everything and i think this one is sort of about men uh but i think it's a testament to how good it is that it doesn't short shrift the the women and actually a very good very often like good shows will kind of add will become multi-dimensional um in you know, subsequent seasons. And I hope that that other ones kind of show us the dimension of this on kind of the, the feminine access or, you know, other on, on in a kind of continuous and hyper-dimensional uh, gender space that, you know, people can kind of occupy and, and move around, move around in. But I, you know, I don't know. I don't think it's, it's the, I don't think it's a d- detriment to the show to say that it doesn't do that um, completely in, in the first, uh, in the first season. It just struck me is that like in this sports show you know with uh, all the the macho boys doing their macho boy sports th- things it had a really expansive you know idea of the potential of that um you know in a way that might be a lot very friendly to kind of our best ideas of ourselves and and um 
you know, uh, that might avoid some of the pitfalls of the, the, uh, you know, the, the kind of the patriarchal, the patriarchal pitfalls, um, that it would be very easy to fall into with a, with a narrative like this. Uh, guys, I think, I think we have kind of come, uh, we have come to the end of stoppage time here at the, <laughs> at the, uh, at the end of this. And so, uh, I want to, I want to make the extra pass and, uh, see if anyone has a, has a parting shot for, uh, d- on the goal of this, this podcast of Ted Lath podcast. I'm t- it's a, it's a podcast. We're, we're talking about podcast. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, I can, I can think perhaps only of that wonderful moments when when the diamond dogs come around which is ted lasso's name for his uh his his the the president of football operations or, or the head of football operations his assistant coach and his kit manager who then becomes an assistant coach uh all get together to talk about women troubles right with regards to like dating and marriage um and there's a great moment where we're nate which we haven't really touched on nate the very short a kind of physically unimposing, but mentally very committed to soccer and kind of genius about soccer, which is early in the show is a thing. And then is kind of left behind later in the show uh, says to everybody right in this scene when he's like, Oh, I'm getting divorced and I slept with this woman and I don't know what to do. And I'm so stressed out. And Nate's like, this is, this is so wonderful. And they're like, why is this wonderful? And he says, well, I always wanted to have a group of guys that I could sit down with and have a conversation about this kind of thing. With. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and there's like a sort of moment of quiet. Uh, and because it's Ted Lasso, it's like, you know, okay. Right. You know, of course you've got it. You've, you've got a champ, right? <laughs> you're there. Right. Uh, and you're an indispensable part of it, that kind of thing. Um, but, it, but it's surprising to think that that is an idea about being a man that this guy already had in his head, but didn't have in his life. And that what became a positive contribution to his life, right? It wasn't a sort of negative, patriarchally oppressive or, you know, emotionally, ne- you know, emotionally inverted, maladaptive sort of thing. Right. You know, having and of course not. And also think that women are also perfectly capable of participating in. It's just a matter of which tradition you see yourself as part of, because, of course, the root of gender is self-experience. Right. Um, And uh, and and of course, um, I guess my last thing I will say is uh, they were very smart with their money. This super duper fancy rich company, because it's a show about soccer in which like there's almost no soccer shown on the show. (laughs) So so if you think, oh, I don't want to watch a whole lot of soccer games. Watch Ted Lasso. There's like half of a game in the whole season. <laughs> there is, yeah. Because we're talking about practice. We're talking about <laughs> not a game. Too much money to fill the game. Practice. Though it's used, it's deployed to great effect. And, uh, you know, we won't spoil the, the very, very end, but the uh, it's a nail-biter to the last second and the way it unfolds and unfolds and unfolds. They really, they really stick the landing, um, to use a, uh, to use a, a metaphor from a completely different sport. All right. Uh, let's blow the whistle on this episode of the overthinking podcast. Thank you for listening. Uh, coach Pete, coach Mark, thank you for uh, coaching this podcast with me. We're talking about podcast. If you've seen Ted Lasso, uh, please sound off in the, in the comments on this, uh, the show notes and we'll be back next week with more overthinking it podcast till then visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve
Hey, hey, fellas, can remind me how we do the, 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 the outro, the, the ending of the show. What does it we do after we say the probably doesn't deserve thing? Oh, I, I mean, we just sort of say anything that may be overthought or a funny thing or kind of a postscript or, uh, it, you know, it's really all up to you. What do you want to say in this kind of situation? Mm. Let, let, let me consult the, the, the pyramid of success here. What would John Wood do? He would reflect on our competitive excellence, which if this is our chief strength, <laughs> he would point out that as a podcast, we, we shan't be we shan't focus on uh, our, our how we are relative to other podcasts, but rather that we are the best podcast that we can be for, uh, to achieve the state of, of success. And excellence. I, I, Coach, Beach, I, I, Coach Pete, I'm out of ideas. I'm just going to start doing the Carlton here. I'm doing the Carlton. Carlton. <laughs> greatest comedian of the 19th, 20th, or 21st century. <laughs> greatest physical comedian of the 19th, 20th, 21st century. Get that silhouette. You know exactly who it is. You know exactly exactly what they're doing. <laughs>